Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah 11. We will get there eventually. As we finish up the book of Nehemiah, which we may or may not do this evening, that will be the end of a very, very long journey through the Old Testament that we've been going through here at GCA that has lasted years and years and years, where we began in the book of Genesis and we just went through all the history books till we're at Nehemiah and Tonight we are going to start tying in the book of Malachi, which is the last book chronologically listed in the Old Testament. And once we get done with Nehemiah and Malachi in the next week or so, then we will have preached our way through the entire Old Testament chronologically, historically. We won't have looked at the Psalms or the Proverbs, the poetry book, Song of Solomon, Those are still hanging out there to look at, but we've done all of the history stuff so that we have a good sense of how the Old Testament works, which prophets were preaching at what time, who they were talking to, and what the circumstances were. And we're going to see more of that tonight. Now, in terms of just schedule, once we get done with the Old Testament history books, since we began in Genesis years ago, and we'll have finally reached Nehemiah and Malachi. That very long journey through the Old Testament has worn this old man out. And so I'm going to need a nap when this is over. And so I think that the Wednesdays after that, after we finish, Steve, if I were you, I would have a sermon in my back pocket. Tom, if I were you, I'd have a sermon in my back pocket. Micah, if I were you, I'd have a sermon in my back pocket. Alex, if I were you, I'd have a sermon in Micah's back pocket. And no, no. I'd like you all four to be prepared because, uh, let's be honest, I could use a break. And so if you're all willing, when we get done with the Old Testament, I'll take that break. You do recognize it's a whole lot easier to preach when you're not present. And yet I'll be present for all four of you. So, (laughs) pressure's on. In my life and history in the church, and you know that I've grown up in the church, I have never heard anybody really preach the book of Malachi without attempting to apply it to the church. And the two big passages of Malachi that they always seem to glom onto are, of course, you have robbed me. Wherein have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. And so preachers thunder down on their congregation about how they have robbed God in their tithes and offerings. And that becomes, you know, guilt giving as opposed to grace giving. The other place they go is that God hates divorce. You also will find that in the book of Malachi. Malachi was 
prophesying toward the end of the book of Nehemiah. And what we're going to look at in Nehemiah now corresponds with what we're going to find in Malachi. They fit together hand in glove. And so the things that Malachi is saying, he is saying to a very specific audience who, for instance, have been instructed by the law of Moses to bring all the tithes into the storehouse. And then Nehemiah is going to arrange for not only temple worship, but for Jerusalem to have choirs and Levites and courses and sacrifices and all the temple service, all of which requires input from the people of Judah. They, they have to give their tithes in order for that to be accomplished. Nehemiah then, having set that whole system up, is going to go back to work for Artaxerxes. So he goes back to Persia. He's gone for a while, and when he returns, he finds that most of the singers and many of the Levites and many of the gatekeepers of the temple have left Jerusalem and gone back to their fields and gone back to work. And the reason was because the people weren't bringing the tithes into the storehouse, so the singers and the Levites weren't getting the shares they were supposed to get, so they had to go back to work. And so Nehemiah is going to tell them that they have shortchanged God, essentially, and he's going to reinstitute tithing again, proper tithing, so that the proper worship of God can go on in the temple. At that time, Malachi is in Jerusalem saying to the people, God says, you have robbed me. And you say, wherein have we robbed you? In my tithes and offerings, bring all the tithes and the offerings into the storehouse so that there may be meat in my house. Right. Why meat? Why food? Why those tithes in my house? Because that's what it takes to pay for the people that are doing the temple worship that they've been assigned to do by Nehemiah. That's an example of how the two books fit together hand in glove. But far too often, as I've mentioned, people glom on to that simply to get the church to give their 10%, which in reality would be more like 30% if you were actually tithing according to the law. I just want to state it plainly here. I'll state it again as we go through it. Not only is tithing not a New Testament, New Covenant principle, but the warnings about tithing in the book of Malachi have nothing to do with the church. They have to do with what was going on in Jerusalem at the time of Nehemiah. And all you have to do is look at Nehemiah, read Nehemiah, and then read what Malachi said, and it all fits together and it all makes sense. And so this is the damage that gets done when people take verses at random, out of context, and then regardless of who they were said to or under what historic context it was said, no matter what the circumstances, they then take that and try to apply it to the church, usually just because it's convenient. Usually because you, if you're part of a church that has a huge budget and you got to bring in a certain amount of money every month, you will go after verses like that so that you can berate your congregation, so that you can bring in more money, and you don't pay any attention to being honest about who that was actually said to or why it was being said. 
And so we're going to look at Nehemiah and compare it with Malachi. We're going to read the book of Malachi. That combination of the end of Nehemiah and the book of Malachi will take us, I think, tonight and next week. But then that's it. We will have gotten all the way through the Old Testament chronologically. In Nehemiah chapter 11, which is where we're starting, we're not going to read all of chapter 11 because a great deal of chapter 11 is names of people you don't know. The first part of chapter 11 has to do with the leaders of the people who lived in Jerusalem. So here's the deal. Jerusalem had been destroyed. The temple had been destroyed. The walls had been knocked down. Jerusalem was defenseless. The people who came back under Ezra and the people who came back with Zerubbabel and then later the people who came back, the early waves with Nehemiah even and with Ezra, first concentrated on rebuilding the temple. Once the temple was rebuilt, they went to work rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem so that Jerusalem could be a defensible city. We're at the point in Nehemiah where the wall is being completed, but the people of Judah still live in the cities of Judah outside of Jerusalem because no one wants to live in Jerusalem because the enemies keep attacking Jerusalem and it's not defensible. So now that the walls are up, Nehemiah is going to start assigning people and getting volunteers to come live in Jerusalem specifically. So the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring out one in ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remained in their cities. So in other words, in order to get a population in Jerusalem to defend Jerusalem and start it again as an actual thriving city, they cast lots. And they started bringing one in ten into the city of Jerusalem. The leaders of Jerusalem live there, and now a population is beginning to be constructed in Jerusalem. So verse 2 says, And the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. So some were there by the fact that lots were cast, and they were sent to Jerusalem. Some volunteered. And now these are the heads of the provinces who lived in Jerusalem. But in the cities of Judah... Each lived on his own property in their cities. So there were the Israelites, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And some of the sons of Judah and some of the sons of Benjamin lived in Jerusalem. From the sons of Judah, there was Athiah, the son of Uzziah, the son of Zechariah, the son of Amariah, and the son of Shephatiah, and the son of Mahalel, and the son of Perez, and so it goes. A whole bunch of names of a whole bunch of people you don't know from a whole bunch of families that don't live in your neighborhood. And then some of the Levites also volunteered and were assigned to go and live in Jerusalem. All the Levites in the holy city, verse 18 tells us, were 284. Also then there were gatekeepers that went to live in Jerusalem to keep the gates, open and shut the gates at the appropriate time. And verse 20 tells us, and the rest of Israel... Of all the priests and the Levites were all in the cities of Judah, each in his own inheritance. So some of the Levites, some of the priests lived in Jerusalem. The rest of them lived in the cities of Judah. Then there were temple servants, and then we're told the names. Starting at verse 22, 
the overseers of the Levites in Jerusalem were Uzi, the son of Bani, and the son of Hashabiah, and the sons of Mataniah, and so it goes. And then it talks about the villages and their fields and the names, and that's the rest of chapter 11. If you want to read those names, go ahead and read them when you get home. And you can find out how, who all those people groups were and all those families that came to live in Jerusalem. But verse 36 tells us that from the Levites, some divisions in Judah also belonged to Benjamin. Because I've told you all along that Judah was made up of the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. So the Levites were also Jewish, Judahites, and Benjamites who served in Jerusalem. That takes us to chapter 12. Now these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, and Sariah, and Jeremiah, and Ezra, and Amariah, and Moloch, and then the names go on and on. And again, they name all of the Levites, verse 8. And the Levites were Jeshua, and Benua, and Cadmiel, and Sherebiah, and Judah, and Mataniah, who was in charge of the songs and the thanksgiving. Okay, then he's going to list for us the chief Levites, who was in charge of all the Levites. That's at verse 22. As for the Levites, the head of the father's households were all registered in the days of Eliashib and Joiada. And so then you're going to read the names of all the chief Levites. Then what you're going to find out is back in the days of David and Solomon, David had assigned the Levites to courses. There were so many Levites that they couldn't all serve in the temple every day. And so David assigned courses. And so Nehemiah is going to reestablish those courses in order to reestablish the appropriate temple worship. There's going to be a dedication of the wall because the wall's been built. Jerusalem's coming alive. It's becoming a city again. And one of the things that David did was that David used to use musical instruments and David wrote psalms to the choirs. And so he's going to reestablish the choirs and he's going to reestablish the musical instruments and he's going to reestablish the worship of God in the temple using music again. So essentially what Nehemiah is establishing is what David and Solomon established in the Solomonic temple way back when which had continued on until that temple was destroyed when Babylon came in. Nebuchadnezzar was responsible for destroying the temple. Now that the temple is being rebuilt, they want to establish the worship of God in the exact same way. So we're actually going to start reading at chapter 12, verse 27, and talk about the dedication of the wall and the procedures for the temple. Do you think those names will come up again in the latter days? You know, it's interesting that you ask that, because in the book of Malachi, he mentions what he calls the book of remembrance. When you get to the end of Nehemiah, there's a couple places, like chapter 13, verse 14, where Nehemiah says, remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds, which I have performed for the house of my God and his services. And so since there's already a book of remembrance being mentioned 
it makes sense that Nehemiah would say, remember me in that book. And in fact, the very end of Nehemiah, the last two verses, oh, well, the very last verse, verse 31 says, and I arrange for the supply of wood at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for this good. So that idea of being remembered for going back to rebuild Jerusalem is part of their common thinking, common culture, and what's being prophesied to them. So it's an interesting question. So yeah, that's why I was wondering. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so I'm starting in chapter 12, verse 27. All of that was introduction. Does not count against my time. I promise you'll be out of here by at least 1030. Okay, so. Now, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving and with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals and harps and lyres. So the sons of the singers were assembled from the district around Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, from Beth Gilgal and from their fields in Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had built themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they also purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I had the leaders of Judah come up on the top of the wall, and I appointed two great choirs. The first proceeding to the right on top of the wall toward the refuse gate. Hashiah and half of the leaders of Judah followed them with Azariah and Ezra and Meshumi and Meshulum and Judah and Benjamin and Shemaiah and Jeremiah. And some of the sons of the priests had trumpets, and Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mattathiah, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zachur, and the son of Asaph. Why is that important? Because when David wrote his psalms, he sent them to the song leader whose name was Asaph. So naturally, the leader of the choir would be a descendant of Asaph. And his kinsmen, Shemaiah, if I don't read all the kinsmen, are you really going to care? So they all got together with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. And at the fountain gate, they went up onto the steps of the city of David by the stairway of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. And the second choir proceeded to the left. While I followed them with half the people to the wall above the tower of the furnaces to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim by the old gate, by the fish gate, by the tower of Hananel and the tower of the hundred as far as the sheep gate. And they stopped at the gate of the guard. And then the two choirs took their stand in the house of God. And so did I and half of the officials with me. And the priests, Eliakim, Maasiah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Elioni, Zechariah, and Hananiah stood with trumpets. And Messiah and Shemai and these other guys and the singers with Jezrahiah being their leader, they all stood to sing. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices and they rejoiced before God. 
because God had given them great joy. Even the women and the children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. The cities around Jerusalem could hear the celebrating going on and the cymbals and the trumpets and the choirs on the walls singing to the glory of God as Jerusalem was established. On that day, men were also appointed over the chambers for the stores. Okay, these are the storehouses. Remember earlier I talked about God saying, bring all the meat into my storehouse. Okay, men were appointed over the chambers, over the storehouses, and over the contributions, the gifts, and over the first fruits, and over the tithes, to gather them from the fields of all the cities, gathering the portions that were required by the law for the priests and the Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who served. For they performed the worship of their God and the service of purification together with the singers and the gatekeepers, in accordance to the command of David and his son Solomon. For in the days of David and Asaph, his chief song leader, in ancient times there were leaders of the singers, and songs of praise, and hymns of thanksgiving to God. And so all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah gave their portions due to the singers and the gatekeepers, as each day required. And they set apart the consecrated portion for the Levites. And the Levites set apart the consecrated portion for the sons of Aaron. That's the way it was set up. These folks who served in the temple were to be provided for by the people through their tithes and their offerings. The part that was sanctified was set apart for the Levites, and the Levites would take the tithes out of that to give to the priests, and therefore everybody who served in the temple of God was provided for. That's what was required in the tithing rules of Moses. Okay, that's all background. Nehemiah has established this. Jerusalem is singing. Jerusalem's finally being established again as the city of God. There's great joy and exaltation going on. So Nehemiah feels good about what's going on and starts feeling that it's probably safe to go back to King Artaxerxes. After all, the king had asked him, how long are you going to be gone? So he feels like it's necessary to go back. Before he does, we start chapter 13. On that day, on the day of all that celebrating, they read aloud the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And there was found written in it, that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but they hired Balaam against them to curse them. Do you remember that story way back when, when the Israelites were brought out of Exodus, when they spent their 40 years in the wilderness? It was the people, the Ammonites and the Moabites, who hired Balaam to try to curse the children of Israel because they were a great mob of people who were coming into this area again and going to occupy the land. So Nehemiah reaches all the way back to that piece of history and says they didn't meet the sons of Israel with bread and water. They didn't help them, but they hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned that curse into a blessing. So it came about. That when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. That's important to know because when Nehemiah leaves, 
and then comes back, they've married foreign women. Not only have they married foreign women, but they've divorced their Jewish wives to marry the more exotic foreign women. That's why when Malachi is prophesying against them, he brings up that God hates divorce because they've been divorcing their wives to marry foreign women. Again, these two books are just going to continue to correspond. Now, prior to this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him where formerly they had put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, and the wine and the oil that was prescribed for the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers and the contributions for the priests. So this fellow Eliashib is given the job to watch over the tithes and the offerings and the oil and everything that comes in that belongs to the priests and to the singers and to the Levites. And what does he do? He decides that his relative Tobiah ought to have a room in the temple. That'd be good. You need a room. So he takes one of the large rooms that was formerly dedicated to the supply that took care of all the people who worked in the temple. And instead of doing that, he set up his relative right there in the big room. Verse 6. But during all this time, I, Nehemiah speaking, was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. And after some time, however... I asked leave from the king. So he's gone back to Artaxerxes for a while. Finally, he asked the king again, I need to go back to Jerusalem. I need to see how things are going. Now, as soon as the cat's away, the mice start playing. As soon as Nehemiah is gone, after he's established Jerusalem, he's established law, he's driven out the foreigners, he's established the tithes and the offerings, he's established the singers and the Levites and the gatekeepers in the temple, he's established everything correctly, he leaves town, and people do exactly what people always do. They They right away start rebelling, and they start thinking, you know, we've been worshiping God, and it's not really getting all that much better for us, really What's the point of keeping all these meticulous rules and laws? And so they start rebelling while he's gone. Verse 7 says, And I came to Jerusalem, and I learned about the evil of Eliashib and what he had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it was very displeasing to me. So I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room And then I gave an order, and they cleansed the rooms. In other words, they rededicated them to God. And I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. And I also discovered that the portions that were due to the Levites hadn't been given to them. As soon as he leaves, the people go, oh, that giving thing we're doing, that 10 to 30% of everything we make, you know, I could probably just keep that. It would be better if I was well-to-do than than those guys. They're just singers. They're just Levites. They're doing their thing in the temple. And probably other people are giving, so I don't have to do it. And I'm, I'm reading the white spaces right there to give you their motivations. But what we know is the people had stopped giving the portion that was due to the Levites. 
so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had left. They had gone away, each to his own field. Why? Because they had now had to go back to work and make their own food. Because the people had stopped providing for them the way that the law said they were supposed to. So then you get to the book of Malachi. Malachi includes, you robbed me. Do you see how that fits now? Yes. And they ask, how have we robbed you? Wherein have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. Well, that's exactly what happened. And so the prophecy of Malachi about the tithes and offerings had to do with the historical reality that the tithes and offerings had been stopped in Jerusalem, which were necessary for the continual support of the priests and the Levites and the gatekeepers and the singers. And so the worship of God in the temple had stopped and they had gone back to their own fields. And so God could say to Jerusalem, who had been assigned to actually do that tithing, he could say to them, you've robbed me in that you didn't do what you're required to do. And that's the context of that part of Malachi and was never meant to be used by the church, by modern day 21st century preachers to tell other blood-bought Christians that if they don't tithe, they're cursed with a curse. You get me? Sir. It has a context. <coughs> yes, sir. The chamber that was prepared for Tobiah that had held uh, tithes and offerings would fit well within the definition of holy and set apart. And I would have thought from day one, when the idea came to give this to Tobiah, that there should have been some ruckus. Oh, there should have been outrage. Yeah, but don't forget it was his job to watch over the room. So everybody kind of figured he was doing that. You know, everybody figured he had that covered. So this was kind of done on the quiet then? because I would suspect so, yeah. And by the way, why was that room available? Because it didn't have a bunch of tithes and offerings. Didn't have a bunch of tithes and offerings in it. So then had they, in fact, robbed God? Yes. Yeah, so it has an actual, genuine, historic context. So here's what happened. So I reprimanded, verse 11, so I reprimanded the officials and I said, why is the house of God forsaken? And then I gathered them together and I restored them to their posts. That means all the singers, the Levites who had left the service of God and gone away each to his own field. He gathered them up again. He restored them to their post. And all Judah then brought the tithe of the grain and the wine and the oil into the storehouse. Keep your finger there. Turn to the book of Malachi. Let's take a look at it. We will go through this verse by verse, but start in chapter 3, verse 8. The way that Malachi presents his prophecies is different than any other book in the Bible. It starts with Malachi making statements. He just makes a plain, flat statement. Like, you robbed me. And then there's always an answer. He always assumes the answer on the part of the people. You will say, wherein? How? When did we ever do that? And then that's the setup for him to explain what they have done so that they recognize their own guilt. With everything we've just read out of Nehemiah, the question comes, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. 
But you say, how have we robbed you? Here's the answer. In your tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse for robbing me, the whole nation of you. Okay, so you've got Malachi now prophesying, a genuine prophet, prophesying the word of God to you and telling you that because you haven't tithed, God has cursed you with a curse. You go look at Nehemiah and you read that he reestablished the tithes. Do you think? Because they've just found out that God is against them for not doing it. That's the motivation for Nehemiah to be able to reestablish it. Verse 10 says, bring the whole tithe, the whole tithe, not just portional. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, where the houses that are the storehouses within the temple. By the way, can I make this really, really clear? Man, I want to make this really just as clear as I possibly can. Your local church is not the storehouse for the Levites. Is that really obvious? Okay. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouses so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, I cannot tell you how many giving sermons I have heard in my life that go straight to that verse. They oftentimes start with, you're robbing God. If your tithes are still in your pocket and not in the offering plate, you are robbing God. <coughs> but then, if you give the tithe, then watch to see if God doesn't open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing you won't be able to contain. It'll be overflowing to you. God never promised you that. He never said that to Luann. He never said it to Micah. He said it to Israel who were required by the law of Moses to bring the tithes in for the support of the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers and the priests, which they had stopped doing. And so Malachi prophesying to them at that moment says, you've robbed God. He's cursing you because you've robbed God. And he's now challenging you. If you go ahead and give that 10 to 30% that he requires, Watch and see if he doesn't look out for you. Watch and see if he doesn't take care of you. That may sound like a real good name it and claim it verse, but it was never said to the church. It was never meant for the church. It was never directed to the church. What did you say? No different from what he said in the law earlier. It's the same thing he said in the law to begin with. Israel was required to bring the tithes for the support of the Levites and the fatherless and the widows. And if they did... He promised to bless them. He's making the same promise here again. Verse 11 says, then I will rebuke the devourer for you. In other words, your fields are going to be plentiful. The fruit's going to grow. You're going to have lots of food. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it, the devourer, may not destroy the fruits of the ground. Nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes. In other words, the grapes are going to grow until they're ripe and you're going to have plentiful wine, says the Lord. And all the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land. In other words, you're going to have plenty of everything. I'm going to take care of you. You're going to have plenty of grain and you're going to have plenty of fields and you're going to have grapes and you're going to have wine and you're going to have olive oil and you're going to have, you're going to have plentiful food if you tithe. 
Who is he talking to when he says that? He's talking to Judah in Jerusalem. That's the historic context. Those are the people who had stopped tithing, who had to be reminded, go back to what I already told you to do. Because nowhere in the New Testament are we ever told that we are under the tithing requirement, you cannot go to Malachi 3 and tell people, go back to what you were told to do. Because you were never told to do it. Does that make sense? Tom and I come out of a church that was heavy, 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 heavy tithe. Heavy, heavy tithe, heavy. If there was a fourth one, he'd have found it. If there was a fourth tithe, he'd have found it. And every single sermon began with, you've robbed God. It, was, it always started there. And you'll say, how have we robbed God? With your tithes and your offerings. And then he'd go to, uh, you run each to your own houses and my house lays waste. He'd go to all these Old Testament verses about Israel and about their responsibility to tithe for the support of the Levites, the fatherless, the widows, the gatekeepers, the singers. And, and somehow he would manage to impose that on our conscience in order to guilt us into giving more money. Mm-hmm. That, I want to say again, is not a proper use of the word of God. Amen. The word of God says in the New Testament to the church that you're supposed to give according as every man purposes in his heart. That's the very opposite of tithing. Mm -hmm. And Paul nowhere in talking to any Gentile church anywhere ever teaches them to tithe. You don't find teaching on tithing anywhere in the New Testament. You do find Jesus saying to the Pharisees who are under the law that they should have tithed because they should have. They were under the law. They were the Pharisees. But oh, the preacher used to love to grab that verse too and say, Jesus said when it comes to tithing, this you should do. That was it. That's how it was imposed on us. Like, well, that that makes it a Jesus thing. No, it's not. All you have to do is pay attention to context. All you have to do is pay attention to who is talking, who they're talking to, and what the historic setting is of what they say to them. And you can clear up all this confusion. For 17 years, let me brag for just a moment. For 17 years... I have stumped over and over again that the only giving I expect at GCA is when you find some value to what we're doing that you think is worth supporting. And then I've shown you the verses in the New Testament where it says, they that preach the gospel should live of the gospel. I've shown you the verses that say, every man according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give. I have preached grace-giving, grace-giving, grace-giving to the extent that we don't even pass a plate. We never have. Mm. I've had people come and visit here who, when the service was over, come up to me and say, hey, hey, you forgot to give the offering. No, we don't take up an offering. We don't do that. We have a box on a wall over there. That box right there, if you want to give something, put it in that box. (coughs) If you give something, I don't know about it. I know nothing. Tom knows it all. Tom's got your number. Whoever you are, Tom's gunning for you. But me, I don't know what you give. So if you come here and you give a lot to GCA, and if you come and you give nothing, I will tell you the truth either way. Because I don't want to know who gives what. I don't want to give special preferential treatment to the person who gives more 
or maybe treat the person who gives less in a worse way. I don't want to know who gives what. I want to honestly tell the preaching of the Bible, the truth of the gospel to everybody without discriminating based on what you give because I fully, completely, utterly believe that the grace of God is sufficient to provide for us. If God is in this thing, then he will provide for this thing and he will provide for this thing through the people that he brings to this thing. And that has worked for us for 17 years. We've had no debt for about 14 of those years. And I manage somehow, I don't know how I do it, I manage to make my living doing this. Because people on the internet also find value to what we're doing here, appreciate the teaching, and want to see it continue so they support it. Because as Nehemiah said, if you don't support it, you know, I got to go back to work. I got to go work in a field somewhere because I have no discernible skills at this age. Yes, sir. You say that you don't know how this all happened. I think you know the answer. Well, yes. Yes. It's a rhetorical question. It is a rhetorical thing. It's the grace of God that makes it work. But that's all I'm trying to say is the grace of God that we preach is the grace of God that sustains us. Therefore, I have never had to tell you that we have a financial crisis, and if you don't start giving your tithes, God's going to curse you just so I can raise enough money to make sure we make the budget that I somehow made up in my head and then imposed on all of you. Yeah. You got that? Yeah. It's not the way to run a church. Of course. You know, it's funny that as I have made these specific differentiations yeah. and said, you know, churches use Malachi and stuff, it's funny how many heads I saw going, yep, yep, that happens, yes. Because I think we've all been through it. We've all been there. We've all been parts of church bodies that run to Malachi to raise money, which is a bad disuse of the Bible. Okay, back to Nehemiah so we can wrap up tonight. So the tithes are restored, says Nehemiah 13, starting at <coughs> verse 10. Starting at verse 12, it says, All Judah then brought the tithe of the grain and the wine and the oils into the storehouses. And in charge of the storehouses, I appointed Shelemiah the priest. Different guy. <laughs> You're not going to be putting your family in there. And Zadok the scribe and Padiah of the Levites. And in addition to them was Hanan the son of Zakur, the son of Madaniah. For they were considered reliable, unlike the previous guy. And it was their task to distribute it to their kinsmen. So remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds, which I performed for the house of my God and its services. As I mentioned, Malachi talks about a book of remembrance. So Nehemiah naturally would say, Remember me for the good I've done here in restoring it. Now, in those days, I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath, not allowable, and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on their donkeys. Well, that would be work, as well as loading wine and grapes and figs and all kinds of loads. And they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day that they sold food. Also, men of Tyre, non-Jews, 
were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing you are doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same so that our God brought on us and on this city all of this trouble? Man, how quick they forget. You don't remember that we just rebuilt the temple? We just rebuilt the walls? Why? Because it was knocked down. It was all destroyed. Why? Because you didn't keep the Sabbath. And now here they are not keeping the Sabbath again. Did not your fathers do the same so that God brought on us and on this city all this trouble? And yet you are adding to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And it came about that just as it grew dark on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut, the doors of the gates, and that they should not open them until after the Sabbath. And then I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load should enter on the Sabbath day. So he put a stop to that, the buying, the selling, the trading that was happening on the Sabbath. And then verse 20 tells us that once or twice, the traders and the merchants from the surrounding areas of every kind of merchandise would spend the night outside Jerusalem. They came there, but they couldn't get in. So they would have to sit out there and wait until the Sabbath was over. Then I warned them and said to them, why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will use force against you. And from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. For this also, remember me, my God, and have compassion on me according to thy greatness and the greatness of thy loving kindness. Now, verse 23, in those days, after he had gone away and come back, in those days I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod and Ammon and Moab. And as for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah but the language of his own people. So I contended with them, and I cursed them, and I struck some of them. There's a preacher who knows how to get people's attention. <laughs> and I struck some of them, and I pulled out their hair. Uh-oh. Uh -oh. <laughs> and I made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons, or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, the king of England, oh dear, the king of England, did not, oh, how did that happen? I was even reading with, with great bravado. Did not Solomon, the king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Didn't he? That's what Solomon did. He loved many strange women, many foreign women, and he lost the kingdom over it. Did not Solomon, the king of Israel, sin regarding these things? And yet, among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was loved by his God. And yet, God took the kingdom from him because he listened to the foreign women. And they brought his heart away to their foreign gods. 
And God made him king over all Israel. And nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. In other words, if Solomon, who God loved that greatly and made him king and gave him wisdom, if he could fall because of foreign women, how much could you fall because of the foreign women? That's why the rule is in place. God is not the great cosmic racist. He just knew that these surrounding nations worshipped foreign gods and he didn't want his people to be influenced by their wives, by their husbands, so that they would end up worshipping the God of their mate instead of the God of Judah. So this was all about the purity of his worship. The very first commandment starts with, you'll have no other God before me. And so God is very, very particular and jealous for his worship solely and completely toward him. So if Solomon could fall because of women, so could you. That's verse 26. Verse 27. Do we then hear about you that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Now we'll look at it next week, but that's the context in which Malachi is going to say, you have left the wives of your youth. You have put them away so that you could have your foreign women. That's the context of God hates divorce. Verse 28. Even one of the sons of Joiada, the sons of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. So I drove him away from me because he had married the daughter of Sanballat. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. Thus I purified them from everything foreign. In other words, they then put those wives away. And I appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each in his task, and I arranged for the supply of wood at the appointed time so that they could have their sacrifices and for the first fruits, remember me, oh my God, for good. Okay, now turn to the book of Malachi. Having read all that, the end of Nehemiah, which is the end of the historic books of the Old Testament, we've made it. The beginning of Malachi says, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Does that tell you who Malachi's talking to? He's talking to Israel. Does it say the oracle of Malachi to the church of Jesus Christ? No. No. Well, then you can't apply anything in this letter to the church. But the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Now, they would argue that everything they've done, the stopping of the ties, the marrying the foreign women, working in the fields, everything else, really, what's the point? It's not getting better for us. We're always at odds with the people who live around us. There's really no point to the worship of God because our life isn't getting any better. In fact, I'm betting at this point, God doesn't even love us anymore. And God says, I have loved you. That's the way Malachi starts. But you say, how have you loved us? His answer, 
Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? And yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals in the wilderness. Edom had just fallen. Historically, Edom had fallen, who were the descendants of Esau. God is saying, look, I just drew a differentiation between you and the Edomites. Jacob I love. Esau I hated. Paul picks that up in Romans 9 as evidence of God's electing grace. That two babies could be in a womb and God could say, Jacob I love, Esau I hate. In this context, God says, this is proof that I love you because I destroyed Edom for their sin and I haven't destroyed you. Malachi is going to say later, you sons of Israel are not destroyed because of my love, because I have loved you, because I have covenant with you. But the point is, you deserve it. I ought to completely destroy you like I destroyed Edom. But I hated Esau. And I have made the mountains a desolation. And I have appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. And though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear it down again. And men will call them the wicked territory. And the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. And your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. That's the beginning of Malachi. Malachi is going to start contending with Israel for everything they have done. He's going to go right through the list. He's going to say, you bring me animals that are blind, that are halt. You bring me sick animals to sacrifice. You don't bring me the best of your flock like I require. You bring me sick animals. And then he's even going to mock them and say, try that with your governor. When it's tax time, go try to pay him with what you bring to me. So he's really correcting Israel's behavior at that moment in time. And as we saw in the end of the book of Nehemiah, they were again reestablished because of what Malachi has said. Malachi is going to end with the word curse. You're cursed with a curse. And then God is silent for 400 years. The next thing they hear is John the Baptist walking on the planet saying, repent, the kingdom of God is near. So that's where we're at. Next week, I can now say with some assurity, next week we're going to finish Malachi. It's not a long book. It's only four chapters. And we've already read a big chunk of it. The Wednesday after that, who's up? Tom's up. The Wednesday after that, who's up? Steve's up. The Wednesday after that, who's up? Micah, who looked very excited about that prospect. How many Wednesdays was that? Next week, I'm going to be speaking. Week after that, Tom. Week after that, Steve. Week after that, you. Week after that, Alex. Can you make it on a Wednesday? I'll have to look. You check. If we need to switch, we'll switch. All right. Questions about Nehemiah and the connection with uh, Malachi? Anything? The casting of lots 
to populate Jerusalem. I would have thought that would be kind of a prime place to be. It was a difficult place to live initially because you couldn't have your fields or your crops. You weren't growing your own food. You were dependent on the people on the outside to provide. And their homes were established. And Yeah, and the homes on the outside were established. They had to rebuild their houses in Jerusalem and stuff. It was a tougher place to live. You know, I think it's fascinating looking at the meaning of names. So Elishib, which is a fairly common name in the Old Testament, but appears to be the same person through Nehemiah, is the high priest. His name means the Lord will restore, the Lord restores. And yet... He's related to Tobiah, who back in chapter 4 was mocking the Israelites for building the wall. His, what is it, grandson marries the daughter of Sanballat, another one of those who mocked Israel. So there is Elisha, the Lord will restore, who has to have things restored by someone else because of his malfeasance. There's Tobiah, whose name means God is good, Jehovah is good, and after all the mocking, they give him a plum piece of real estate in the temple chambers. Yeah. It's like, you have to say, what are these people thinking? Yeah. And yet, who's going who's gonna to object to what the high priest says to do? Right. Especially, too, don't forget that during this period, Jerusalem doesn't have a king. They're under the headship of a foreign Persian king, but they have a governor who reports to, Nehemiah, who reports to the king. So we read before... was in Nehemiah's absence. Yeah, and we read before there was no king in Israel, so every man did what was right in his own mind. Like I said, as soon as the cat's away, the mice just go crazy again. And I just compared the people of Jerusalem to crazy mice. So, okay. Yes, yeah, that's pretty much the only way you can get away with that. Doesn't say it in the Bible. They say it. But how often have we seen God saying, Don't say what I didn't say? Mm-hmm. That's what he keeps saying to the prophets. Don't say what I didn't say. So the fact that there are still today preachers who will say stuff like that, if God didn't say it, they shouldn't be either. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.